You're listening to Riding a Rocket, presented by RocketShipJobs.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Riding a Rocket. On today's episode, we have Matthew Hamilton. Matthew was an early employee at Venmo. Before that, he did a few other projects. Uh, he was a uh, co-founder and CEO of Turby, uh, CTO of Time Flies, and then uh, after Venmo, he went to uh, Stash Invest and then Ends, and now he is at Bank Novo. So, Matthew, welcome to the show. Ah, oh, thanks for having me, Henry. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. So, just to give everybody a little background, me, me and Matt uh, went to high school together. Have been interacting a lot on Twitter over the past, uh, you know, few years, but uh, haven't really, you know, caught up in person in a while. So, uh, during uh, this uh, quarantine, gonna have a nice little virtual uh, catch up. So excited. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> so, so Matt, um, what I just said about who you are, anything that you want to add that, that I may have missed? No, no, that's definitely my, my background for sure in terms of uh, what I've been doing. I've always been someone who works on a lot of side projects, gets involved in a lot of other things. So I'm sure some of those things will come up as well. But yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think some of those will come up. I have, I have a, a bunch of questions here. So, so first... I mean, the, the main focus is going to be on Venmo, right? I mean, that's the big thing about this podcast. We want to talk to people that were early stage at these legendary companies, right? Venmo definitely being one. I think anybody who's listening to this has heard of Venmo. And if you haven't, you're probably listening to the wrong show. <laughs> so tell me about Venmo a little bit. Like what, what number employee were you uh, at Venmo? Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't have exact numbers and I certainly wasn't paying attention to that at the time. You know, I was definitely there with uh, a little under 10 people. Uh, and I, I basically say essentially that it was early times. And actually, when I when I first started at Venmo, I was actually working part time there because I was trying to work on my own startup, Torby, and a couple other things at the same time. But eventually, Venmo became a rocket ship. And, uh, <laughs> I certainly wanted to stay on that. So yeah. I was there for almost six years, which was, which was a wild ride. Yeah, yeah. It looks like you made a a lot of a lot of progress there in terms of like your career, right? I mean, you started as just as a, as an engineer, um, iOS and uh, the back end side, then the product manager, senior product manager. So you definitely uh, grew with, with the rocket ship. It seems. What made you decide to to join Venmo as uh, while you were kind of working on Torby? Oh man. So well, <laughs> it's a bit of a long answer. So originally, I actually <laughs> got connected to Venmo pretty randomly. Um, now I had interned at a place in college called AngelSoft, which was they're called Gust now. They essentially help startups connect with investors, um, and they do a bunch of other things now as well. But at the time, they were really about helping angel investors manage entrepreneurs applying to them. And so that was where I first heard about Menmo through uh, actually this guy who was the entrepreneur in residence at Rose Tech Ventures, Nate Westheimer. He was the president of the New York Tech Meetup. And he started tweeting out his Venmo payments. And I got on Twitter way back in like 2008, I think. So I, that's where I had heard of Venmo. And so then fast forward to right before I graduated from college, I got my first smartphone. Uh, in 2011, February 2011. <laughs> and uh, so one of the first uh, apps I downloaded was Venmo because I had heard of it. I, I thought it was cool you know, to be able to send money digitally. 
And so I started using it with my co-founder at the time. We were splitting lunches. And then fast forward to July 2011, we're walking down the street in Chelsea. And this guy is walking by and he's got a shirt that says Venmo on it. And we freak out because, you know, Venmo was not well known at the time and we had been using it for six months. And so my co-founder goes, hey, do you work for Venmo? He goes, yeah, I'm actually one of the founders. And it was, it was Ikram who uh, was the CEO and co-founder of Venmo. And, you know, he was like, wow, that's awesome. You just made my day because we were like, we love Venmo. It's great. It's awesome. We just used it to split, split lunch. And so that's how I got connected to Ikram and Venmo originally, uh, which is pretty crazy. It was totally random. I'm very lucky, you know, that that happened. And we got to talking. And, you know, to circle back to your original question, you know, why did I join? I mean, first of all, I was able to hang out with Ikram and Andrew Cortina, um, the, the other founder, and a few other people. And I loved what they were doing. I loved the startup vibe a lot. And to be frank, I mean, they were interested in hiring more people in New York and I was running out of money. I was living out of my dad's apartment, trying to get a startup going. It was not working out that well. <laughs> so I really needed the money at the time. And Ikram was like, Hey, come work here. We got a lot of stuff to work on and it's really exciting. And, and I think it would make sense. You know, you're very entrepreneurial already. You've already built this other website because Torby was basically like an Airbnb for local tour guides. So we had already built kind of like a marketplace there. So he had already seen that and been impressed with what we had built there. So yeah, I mean, I I was excited about Venmo. I I definitely, I needed the money as well. I was still excited about possibly starting my own company, uh, which is why I started part-time. But that's really why I joined in the first place. It was really exciting. And I was already interested in startups before then. It makes sense. So, so what was the... Uh... The hiring process, like, did you go through like a long interview process or was he just like, look, you did Torby, you seem cool, let's go? <laughs> <laughs> so originally they wanted to hire me as a software engineer and I actually didn't go to college for software engineering. I studied material science engineering, which they do require you to take one intro computer science class, but I did not like it at all. However, when I was trying to build Torby, I learned a lot about coding because we were building out our own website. So I definitely contributed there. That said, I would say I was definitely on the novice side of software engineering at the time. And I did have to go through a coding interview with uh, Matt DiPasquale, who was like the first engineer at Venmo um, outside of the co-founders. And so I went through that. So th there was some rigorousness, but I think definitely at the time it was about, hey, can he... Can he learn on the job? Is he capable? And does he, you know, fit in with what what we're trying to build and excited about the company? Nice, yeah. And I'm I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that because I want to ask you a little bit about um, what makes somebody successful at a startup. But but first, I want to kind kind of stick a little bit on the Venmo for a minute because when you joined, so you joined, I believe it was like September or so, 2011. That that's that's yep. from my research what I have. But then in 2012, Venmo got acquired. Yep. What what like so pretty much a year after after you got there like it's no longer this small you know company now you're a part of Braintree. Yep. What was that like? Like when did you find out that ha was going to happen? Like I, I just would love to hear no more. Yeah, I mean, I would say probably every startup is different in terms of how the founders communicate with the different employees there, but Ikram and Cortina were very very transparent about what was going on. We were rewriting the apps at the time, and I remember at one point, <laughs> Ikram comes in the room and he's like, you know, we've been trying to raise money, but it's just not working that well. Like, 
I don't care. Like if we have to raise money from Kickstarter, I'll do it. And that was when I really knew that we were running out of money and it was difficult. And that was because at the time, Venmo was a free product. We weren't making any money. We were spending a lot of it. And we were offering, even at that time, free credit card transactions. So we were losing a lot of money just from the activity. And so it was very clear to me that that wasn't sustainable. But all the activity and the new use cases that we were seeing, and we actually launched a new app in June 2012, like May, June 2012, that was the redesigned app. And that's very similar to the app that you see today, which was central with the social feed. Before that, Venmo actually wasn't a social feed centric. The social feed was actually buried in the app. Um, it just had four buttons, you know, send money, request uh, your account. So I was super excited about that. And we were excited about it too. And we could see that that was the future, but we were running out of money and there were, we were running out of options. So it was really amazing that, you know, Braintree swooped in and they were excited about the possibilities that we could meld their, you know, payment processing capabilities. And we had been one of their customers in the past. So we had familiarity with them. And so the experience of, of, of that going to Braintree was really interesting because originally I was skeptical. I was worried. I was like, okay, is this startup life over? But actually at the time, that was really, that summer was when I decided that I wanted to go full-time at Venmo and really commit to it. And Braintree was really cool. Like meeting a lot of the engineers, they were very heavily engineering focused, very interested in building great systems. And they were a company in Chicago. So it didn't all hit me originally when we first got acquired what was going on. And keep in mind, Braintree at that time was only like, I think maybe 100, maybe 150 employees. So it was also still a bit more on the startup side. It wasn't this big company. It wasn't getting like getting acquired by like Facebook or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, because when, when I think of like a startup, and, and it sounds like even when you were joining Venmo and, and then... Braintree kind of acquiring it. It's like you think of a startup, you're like, all right, I'm going to be moving fast, like doing a lot of things. Like I'm going to learn a lot. I'll probably move up pretty quickly in my career. At least that's some of the things I think about. And then there's the equity aspect, like you get equity of, of a company and then, you know, you can potentially make out pretty well. Right. But I'd imagine like because you they got acquired like a year within your you're there, like you didn't get a chance to invest or anything. No, I mean, I definitely had some equity at the time. And I'll say, I mean, this was my first real job out of college. So it was definitely a situation where I didn't know exactly what was going on in terms of stock and equity and all that kind of stuff. And also, I mean, you know, there was a lot going on and not everyone knew, knew what was going on as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely had stock that transitioned into Braintree stock. And when we got acquired, it was a great, you know, acquisition process because everyone basically got raises. Like it was not your typical acquisition story where they kill the product and they don't invest in the team and all that. It was very different in that they wanted to keep us alive. They wanted to encourage us to keep working on what we were working on. And also they wanted to build some functionality that Braintree could use to sell as well on their product, uh, which is called Venmo Touch at the time. That was the big thing was they wanted to acquire us because they wanted to come out with this thing called Venmo Touch, um, which we did. we did eventually come out with and had out for a couple of years as well. But yeah, I mean, on the equity side, you know, I, I definitely got some, I wasn't necessarily super aware of all the specifics of when things were vesting, but that turned into Braintree equity. And at Braintree, we all got new contracts with new vesting schedules and things like that. And that was really where things got real for me. 
Gotcha, gotcha. Because then Braintree was acquired. <laughs> like a, a year, like yeah. you've been through more acquisitions than that <laughs> most people go through in their career in the first like few yeah. years of your your career, right? <laughs> what what was so so Braintree got acquired by eBay, which at that you know, Braintree may have been small, but eBay, for my knowledge, in two thousand and thirteen was not. Did that change things for you, or how how was that? Yes, that was truly that type of acquisition of being acquired by this mega company. Because at the time, we were technically acquired by PayPal, but PayPal was still a part of eBay, right? And so it was crazy the levels that you saw. I remember at one point in time, we had some of the IT people come in to talk to us about like how to, I don't know, how to manage your like HR information, right? So, so it was a workshop for employees, right? And I remember <laughs> the person from eBay, at the time, all of eBay's HR and IT people were based out of Utah. So this was someone coming in. They had basically never been to New York City. And they come into this startup and they're doing a workshop. And they're like, so, you know, you just open up your Internet Explorer browser. And everyone there is like, no one uses Internet Explorer. <laughs> no one even has a Windows computer. We all have Macs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like the most, the most disconnect I had ever seen. And then the person didn't know what to do. And what did they do? They did the typical corporate thing, which was they just continued with their presentation as if, you know, <laughs> someone would get something out of it. Yeah. Uh, pretty much useless. <laughs> so yeah, that was crazy because we just experienced being part of a very large company. And that was where there was a lot of confusion about what the future was going to be like at that point in time. And eBay and PayPal, of course, were going through their own issues because over the course of that next year, was when you had activist investors saying PayPal needs to spin off from eBay and then eventually PayPal spinning off from eBay. So they kind of had their hands full and they were a bit distracted, which was actually good for us in some ways because we were able to continue to kind of focus on our own projects. In the beginning, we didn't kind of get a mandate of like, this is what you need to do. In the beginning, it was kind of like, keep doing what you're doing. We'll, we'll get to you eventually. Mm -hmm. And so when did that, uh, that mandate come? Like, what, what would you say... Yeah, what when did that when did that happen and how was that? Well, that was where I started really getting experience of corporate operations, right? So at some point, I think it was like maybe the summer of 2014, we got news that like we needed to be working on something to convert Venmo users to PayPal users, right? We had to somehow get them to sign up for a PayPal account. And we thought that was really stupid because we knew that our user base was didn't like PayPal. They, they preferred using Venmo for, for a lot of things. And they really didn't like that. And so I remember, you know, at one point, someone at the company was like, you know, just keep working on it. Like, just go through the motions. Like, they just want to know that you're kind of working on it. It's probably going to get killed. And someone will eventually realize that it's a bad idea. But for now, we have to <laughs> pretend that we're working. Uh the big company like gymnastics, it's such bullshit, but it exists. <laughs> and what, and what, what happened with that was eventually someone realized that it was a bad idea and it did get killed, which was great, but it takes time. Like these things took time and I had to get roped into all these meetings with all these people cross department. And at the time, the, the communication was not great. So you would have this separate meeting with one department and then you talk to another department and they'd be like, well, our conversation with this other department was different. So now you got to go back and figure that out. And it's like, why don't you guys just talk to each other? Why don't we have one meeting where we can kind of shake this out? And of course, usually they would say, well, we can't have one meeting because that would be a hundred people. And it's like, 
well, <laughs> there's got to be a better way here. So it was definitely, definitely frustrating. And, and I had a lot to learn in terms of those kind of corporate politics and how those things were going. And it was very interesting. Another thing that was really big was at the time, eBay did not allow corporate Gmail. Like you couldn't use Gmail. And we were on G Suite. You know, yeah. we were using Gmail Startup, for everything, Google Docs, all those kinds of things. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and and it, was, it was a huge contentious thing. eBay IT like, there is no way in hell we're going to allow you to continue using G Suite. And it got so crazy that I believe it was Cortina had to like put his foot down and say, either I leave or you're letting us continue to use Google Docs. Like, it sounds ridiculous, but like, that was the kind of thing that had to happen. And w- what happened out of that? Well, eventually they said, oh, you know what? It's okay. You guys can keep using G Suite. <laughs> and actually, here, here's a fun thing you might be able to dig up on Twitter. I remember at the time, so David Marcus was the CEO or the president of PayPal at the time. Do you know that name? I don't know the name, no. So David Marcus, he eventually left PayPal and became head of Messenger at Facebook. And now he actually runs and heads up cryptocurrency at Facebook. He's a big guy at Facebook now. But I remember at the time during this showdown between like eBay IT and Venmo, I remember he tweeted out a question just, you know, to, to Twitter saying like, hey, you know, how do, how do other corporations use G Suite or, or, or how do you think about the security of, Google, of Gmail and, and Google and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> because he was soliciting kind of the general public to, because it was so foreign to a lot of folks at PayPal at the time that G Suite, you know, was so much better or that you could trust it. And of course, you know, we've come a long way. I'm sure... Uh, I'm sure a lot of people at PayPal and eBay right now would would also quit if they couldn't use Google Docs. Yeah, I I, I remember um, I was at it, EMC back in like probably around that time, 2013, and I was leaving to go to a startup. And one of like my requirements was like, if they're not on if they're not on G Suite, I don't want to go because like yeah. we were using we were using a like Microsoft Office within my within uh, EMC. And I hated it, but all my like side products I would work on, I would always use G Suite because it has all the you know extensions and everything you can kind of do there. So it was, it, I, I understand completely that that uh, that battle. Yeah, even use your own tools, you know, as you work is something that I feel like even as a company gets to be a large company, they have to preserve that kind of thing because I think it directly affects productivity. You know. Yeah, I agree completely. Oh, let's go on. Let's riff on that a little bit. So when, when you think about growing a company and, and just like a company being successful, how do you think about like the people there, right? Like what makes somebody, somebody that can be successful at like a, a Venmo or a Bank Novo or like, you know, any kind of like fast growing, you know, rocket ship company? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely a couple elements that I think are super important. I think one of them is definitely that growth mindset, the learning mindset where no matter what you are working on or challenge that you're you're facing, you're trying to continue to be creative and learn and almost academic sometimes in adapting to what's going on. And also, I think you have to be proactive. I think you have to be proactive as, as a person. I think if you don't have those two elements where you're willing to learn and you're not fixed in your mindset and you are also proactive and enthusiastic in, in, in rising to those challenges and morphing and changing, 
I think it's going to be really, really hard for you at a startup because different opportunities arise. And sometimes in order to take advantage of them, you need to think outside the box. You need to think differently about your trajectory. A lot of people, a lot of people say like, if you're on a rocket ship, you know, you'll do anything right to stay on that rocket ship. Right now, the thing is at a lot of startups, you don't know if you're on a rocket ship yet. Right. Like you see certain things, but we've seen so many high profile flame outs of companies, especially recently, right? Yeah. That you don't really know if it's worth the sacrifice or if it's worth, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily consider it a sacrifice, but if it's worth the effort to grow and change and decide to mop up the floors, you really have to be humble in that way. Like, for example, at Venmo and, and at other startups I've been at, I've always been willing to roll up my sleeves and do something about it. If, you, if you're too focused on just kind of staying in your lane and doing what other people tell you, I think it's very difficult to succeed at a startup. Yeah. So you were at Venmo. And like you said, you've been at a lot of startups, right? That's, I mean, you were doing your own before that. I mean, Venmo became eBay in a way, right? But then, but then you went to Stash, then Ends, which was mm-hmm. with the Venmo uh, founder, Bank Novo. Now, what about you know these small uh, startup companies? Is is like sticks out to you? Why do you? Why does it seem like that's where you continue to go? Yeah, I, I like it for a few different reasons. I think one, I'm someone who consistently questions, especially in the fintech industry, for example, the status quo and trying to figure out ways that we can creatively change that or improve it fundamentally. And so I think going to to startups, there's a real opportunity to be a part of that research and to be a part of that ideation and be a part of shipping those types of features. So I think there's a lot in that. I also really love the chaos. And I'm someone who I think I'm a very... Personally, I think I'm very good at making sense of a lot of messiness and bringing in some order and some process, but not being overly prescriptive or overly like micromanaging people around that process. And so, for example, at Stash, you know, when I came in at Stash, we were about 20 employees. So we, we had had, I think we'd already had 100,000 users, but we hadn't hit a million, for example. And at the time, they were one team. They had one product manager, one designer, and a group of engineers. Um, and of course, other people outside of that as well. But they needed to transition from that to multi different product teams, multiple product teams. And that's a really hard thing to do because you're really trying to hit all your goals in a high pressure environment because you have pressure from investors, you have pressure, you have pressure from the founders, you have pressure from customers as well to ship products, features, all those things. You have fundamental problems you need to fix. But at the same time, you need to expand your capabilities and you need to expand organizationally how things work. Because originally when I came to Stash, we had one stand-up in the morning where everyone would tell everyone else, here's what I'm doing, here's what I did yesterday, here's what I'm going to work on. By the end of that time, we were doing separate stand-ups. And it is very difficult to work on the product during that transition. How big did Stash get from your time? So when I left, we, we had over 100 employees, probably over 120. So we grew by a lot. 
Yeah, we, we grew by about 100 people. Yeah, And that's in like a year. Yeah, it was a very <laughs> short time. Hyper growth in terms of the organization, hyper growth in terms of the actual company. I mean, we, we hit over a million users when I was there as well. So it was pretty crazy. But I really think that that is where I, I do well. So for example, joining Novo, where I'm at now, it was the same, a very similar situation where you know you have one team working on one feature set, right? And we're trying to get to a point where we can be more scalable, where we can hit that growth mode and it'll actually work and things don't just fall apart, right? Because that's where you kind of enter this plateau as a company and you never get out of it, is that you know, things start to fall apart and you don't do a good job of fixing those things. You don't do a good job of scaling up the organization and you can't really ascend and keep going with that growth. So I think for me, I'm drawn to messiness. I like making sense of certain things, but I'm actually, but I, I think actually some of the messiness, some of the uncertainty is a real good thing because it leaves room for innovation. It leaves room for creativity. It leaves room for for doing things your own way. And I'm someone, I mean, this is also something that I'm just in touch with. I'm someone who likes to form ideas and be able to move forward with them and not have something squashed from some mm-hmm. political oh, battle. That's the worst. You know, people hire up to me. <laughs> it's um, the worst. And, and so that's difficult. And it, and it really, I'll, I'll be honest with you, like it makes me question my ability to join a very, very large company because of the fact that I, I think a lot of very large companies are very corporate. They are. And you can, you, can, you can act like they're not, but we've all heard stories about Google and Facebook and all the tech companies about how even at those companies that seem to be tech companies, because they're so large, it is very, very difficult sometimes to do your own thing or to do or to be able to get something prioritized, even if it's better for, for users because of the fact that you've got a lot riding on on all these moves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to turn a big ship like that, right? Totally. And um, I don't think there's anything that they can do about you know when you start to get that size, you have to have like more what do you call it uh, like structure to how you work, and that's why startups will always exist, and startups will always you know find ways to beat these companies in in certain areas, maybe not completely right, but they'll they'll be there's opportunities to to win. Actually, I want to take us back a little bit. With that said, right. When you were at Venmo, I don't know if this was a startup where they came out of Square, but Cash App was created while you were there. Um, yeah, so originally it was called Square Wallet, if you remember that. So before I do not it was rebranded, well. yeah, before it was rebranded as Cash App, it was actually called Square Wallet, and that was actually the first version of kind of Cash App. How, how was that? Like when because when I I remember when I was like first I was on Venmo. Only used Venmo. Only used Venmo. And then one of my buddies came to me. He's like, he's like, hey man, you got to try this Cash App thing. Got to try this Cash App thing. I'm like, I don't need Cash App. I've got Venmo. Like, why do I need two of these same apps? But eventually, over time, it seemed like more and more people are telling me like, I want just Cash App me, Cash App me. It just seemed like it, it almost overtook Venmo as like the number one in, in a way. What it was it like internally while that was all happening? Yeah, totally. We have always admired Square and Twitter, definitely. I think we definitely admired them at the time. And so when we started seeing that, one, it was validating, right? Because over my time at Venmo, every few months, a new Venmo killer would come out or there would be rumors that 
Google is creating a Venmo killer or Facebook is working on a Venmo killer. There were so many of those. And through so many of those instances and cycles, Venmo was still alive. Venmo was still on top. And so with Square Wallet and eventually Cash App, it was the same thing. It was We were excited about it, but we, were, we also felt that our vision and our way of execution was going to ultimately win out. And originally, Venmo's mission was to connect the world and empower people through payments. I'm not sure if that's still their internal mission, but at the time, that is what we, we agreed on. I th- thought that was very powerful. And so when Cash App first came out, it was very utilitarian. It was very much just like, send me a payment. There's no note. It's not social. It's just send me payments back and forth simply. And that's actually originally where Venmo was. And we went into the social aspects because we felt that money is inherently social and being able to augment and empower people through some of those feature sets was going to be more powerful or more applicable in a variety of situations. Now, let's fast forward now. It's been like five years since that argument was made and, and I had that mindset. I think, you know, I don't want to speak too ill of them, but I think there's more that can be done on those social aspects that I haven't really seen them leveling up. And so I think it's provided an area where Cash App has been able to gain a foothold because they have come out with features that are either similar or even different than Venmo and provided that argument of, hey, Cash App's better in a lot of these areas. Why not just use Cash App, right? And people continue to still say the social feed, it's cool, but like, I'm not really sure, right? Yeah. Every time I send a Venmo, I look at the social feed though. I, every time I send one, I'll go see what people are doing and, and I'll like a few, but sure. yeah. Totally. <laughs> but that functionality has barely changed since 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is where there needs to be more iteration, more innovation and more you know, progress. Because if you don't see that, you have this stagnation. And it, what would you? What else would you do? What uh, just like let's riff? <laughs> There's so much that I would do. Yeah, <laughs> give me give me one or two. You don't got to go crazy. Yeah, totally. I mean, first of all, I think group purchases are social. I think there's a lot related to group purchases. Like we're all going to send people a gift, right? Or even I'm going to send someone a wedding gift. I, I think there's a missed opportunity with with literally copying the idea of sending someone a greeting card with a special message that's handwritten that has money in it, like that has a check in it, right? I want to send people wedding gifts on Venmo. The problem is it's basically the same as sending a regular Venmo for chips. It would be really great if there was more nuance there and there was more gravity to sending someone like a wedding gift or a birthday present or something like that. I think those things, looking at how things make it feel more personal, right? Or, or more, more personal, more emotional, right? And, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and think about it also in the sense of let's say your friends chip in to buy you something on your birthday, right? Or to buy you a gift. Maybe it's a housewarming gift. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a really cool way that your friends could express themselves, their love for you, their excitement for you through that payment, through that experience? there's a lot there. There's a lot of nuance there that's not being you know, addressed. It's not empowering people and the users to do it with those payments. And so what you end up is you end up with a lot of payments that look a lot the same. They are dynamic and they're more dynamic than a lot of cash app payments, 
but there's just so much more. There's such a breadth of human expression that is not there and can be created digitally, right? Especially now in quarantine, we're, we talk so much about how do you recreate the office experience? How do you recreate, you know, the gravity of a face-to-face conversation? All those little, little things, you know, the ticks, raise your hand, high five, you know, hug, you know, those types of things. I would love to see them go deeper on a lot of those social interactions digitally. And a lot of those things have to do with transactions, right? So I, I'd love to see more of that. But there are other aspects as well. I think there's aspects, and we, we've seen this a little bit, but I think there's a huge opportunity with merchants to develop deeper relationships with merchants. If merchants are more active in the feed, you create more social activity there that has to do with like, let's say you buy a PS5. Well, why can't Sony do a promotion where you buy a PS5 and then you and your friend sees it in the feed and you know if they interact with it or do something else, maybe they can start they can pay Sony for a PS5 through Venmo or interact with it that way or get a discount because they do it that way. There's so much, you know, more that kind of can connect the dots there that, yeah. that I'm not seeing, right? Yeah. Very very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I'd I'd love to see see some more of that because I could imagine it would it would keep me in Venmo more. Cause like I said, I, I do pay attention to the social feed a lot. But not, not even not even keeping you in Venmo more. I think there's also an opportunity if they came out with like a real developer SDK to bring it to other areas. I think a great example of this when you look at the big tech companies is Snapchat, Snapkit. That has created this whole ecosystem of smaller apps that use Snapkit that hook into Snapchat or use Snapchat functionality and create joy and create new possibilities and create new contexts. I think there's something to be said for bringing a lot of those social interactions and transactions outside of Venmo to relevant contextual places, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense, makes sense. Cool. All right, so I wanna, now I want to start getting closer to, uh, to Bank Novo in terms of your timeline. But first, I want to stop at Stash one more time. You mentioned they got to, I think you said, a million users on Stash before you left in that year. So it was, it was a rocket ship in terms of the growth. Uh, but Absolutely. I think I just looked at them on LinkedIn, and there's like, I think there's like three people on LinkedIn that said work there now. I don't know Stash well. Maybe I'm looking okay. at the wrong thing. Um, but yes. but what what what's going on? What happened with Stash? Where yeah, it says three people. What's kind of going on with Stash? What what is Stash? Yeah, there's probably a different listing there. It may be under Stash Financial or Stash Invest. Oh, three hundred five. Sorry, I, I was, my my yeah. uh, browser was small. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, yeah, they have about three hundred employees now. Um, they've definitely gotten gotten bigger in a lot of ways. Stash is an investing product for people just starting to invest. And I really think that's a great area because so many people right now are trying to get into investing. That's why I mentioned earlier about Cash App coming out with things that are not even on them. Like, for example, being able to start investing on Cash App. I think that's really interesting because of the fact that they're playing on that they're introducing investing to a population that may not have a lot of exposure to it yeah. or a lot of dollars around it. So, I mean, that's why Robinhood is what it is, right? Because they, they're, they're exactly. grabbing this uh, group of people that were not using, you know, we're not investing at all, right? So Cash App is trying to make their way in there. <laughs> yeah. And, there, you know, there's so many different flavors of that. And Stash is one of them as well. They made it approachable. 
they made it easy. They made it easy to invest in buckets of stocks like ETFs rather than just uh, one stock at a time like Robinhood. Robinhood still kind of has a wait list for their fractional investing. Stash was doing fractional investing before any of that. Our biggest competitor at the time was Acorns. And in my opinion, Stash was making it more approachable and a lot more empowering because with Acorns, they were just investing in the same stocks every single time. With Stash, you could choose what you wanted to invest in, so it was much more personalized. I love that personalization. Like That is a theme of places that I look at and things that I think are really interesting because I, I, I'm really bullish on that being a theme of the next 50 years. So yeah, I mean, that, that was you know my time with Stash, really learning a lot about investing because I had really never been exposed to investing and how that works from a fintech side. So, so you left Stash though after mm, 13 months or so, 14 months. What made, you, what made you decide to do that? There were two reasons really. The first one was they were interested in going a little bit in the banking direction. So they were interested in launching a debit card, which they eventually did launch. Um, and launching a few other features around that. I had come to Stash because I was really interested in continuing to dive deeper onto the investing side. So that was just something where it was like, you know, the direction changed in terms of the overall vision of the company. I was a little less interested in that. And then on top of that, I had reconnected with Ikram, co-founder of Venmo. And he was saying, hey, I'm working on this project. And it's like, do you want to jump on and, and, and check it out and work on it with me? And so for those reasons, I was interested in kind of moving away. I was also thinking about possibly leaving fintech entirely. So, you know, there were a lot of factors involved. And so I decided to go that route and work with Ikram on Ents and see where that took me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you did leave fintech entirely with Ents, right? I mean, that wasn't a fintech product really at all. But now you're uh, at Bank Novo and you are doing banking pretty much is what it, it sounds Maybe not exactly what Stash was doing, but a, a, a part of the reason that you were leaving Stash. Tell me a little more about Bank Nova. I, I'd, I'd love to, to learn more about the company. Totally. So, you know, I've had the good fortune of being able to be really picky in terms of the financial, uh, the fintech companies that I've looked at and had an opportunity to possibly be a part of. So, Novo specifically, what drew me to it was the fact that they are focused on, we are focused on small businesses. And the deeper that I looked into that area, the more I realized that it is very underserved as an aggregate you know, class in America specifically, but probably worldwide, it holds true as well. And on top of that, B2B is a very different use case in a lot of ways than, than consumer. And so yes, it is a bank and it is consumer-like, but there's a lot of aspects to it that are not the same as running a consumer debit card. And so I really like that. I also got really excited about the team. I got to meet the founders, you know, Tyler and Michael. They are amazing. I love their vision. They truly want to be a part of fundamental change, foundational change in this industry. And that was got, what got me excited about the opportunity to work at Novo and to work on this problem. Because ultimately, especially when you're working in product, but really just in general joining a company and a startup, you have to fall in love with the problem. You have to fall in love with the problems that you're solving. And in my opinion, they have to be big enough to have areas that are unexplored, even, even after working there. I mean, I've worked there for almost a year, and there's still many angles that we have just unexplored because we've had our hands full working on a lot of things that are top of mind and prioritized. So, I mean, I had the experience at ENTS working on a social audio app, which was cool. There are a lot of aspects 
aspects that were really cool about it. But I did have an itch to join a slightly larger company because Ikram's uh, outfit right now, very small number of people, very small company right now, which is great. And I love that. But I wanted to join, you know, a slightly larger team. And it just, it, it was really opportunistic. You know, I, I was introduced to the Novo founders and I really clicked with them. And it was really an opportunity to work on a problem that is just really overlooked and I think has a lot of opportunity to, to fix problems there that the consumer side right now is oversaturated, but the business side, not so much. Although it is encouraging to see that there are a few other companies, startups trying to do similar things, trying to work on the same problem, which is great. It's always validating to see competition. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot there. Um, and I want to kind of, kind of dive in a little bit because the reason you chose Novo, and I think a lot of what you said is the reason I, I is, is what a lot of people talk about why they decide to join a startup, right? It's the founders, the space, I think you said, and that, yeah, the, the founders like being passionate about like what they're doing and then that the space being big enough for there to be like a real opportunity. Anything else that you would add in terms of if somebody's looking at joining a startup, they should, you know, weigh it or evaluate yeah, I mean, for me, it's the people, the problem, and in a lot of cases, the position. What are you going to be working on day to day? How is that going to work, right? And that can matter depending on what the opportunities are. For me, I couldn't join a startup as someone who's working on like paid advertising. I just, I just can't do it. It's not something I'm that interested in as a position. It's not that I don't like it or don't like people who work on it. It's just that for me, it's just not the right place to, to work. But those are really the three aspects I would say when you're thinking about joining a startup that you really want to think about. Really the people, who are they? Can you learn from them? Are you excited about working with them? And then secondly, the problem, right? What are they working on? Is it something you can get really excited about? And going back to what I said earlier, is it something you could be proactive about that you're going to actively seek out what's going on there and learn about it and learn about all the aspects of it, not just a problem that you're like, oh, you know, it's cool. It's interesting. Yeah, I guess I can get into it. That's just not a good sign. Yeah. So it, it, with Novo, you guys are focusing on small businesses, freelancer small businesses. That was like something I read about. From a, a business standpoint, that can be tough, right? Because out of out of all the kind of companies that, that are going to churn on you, the ones that churn the fastest are typically, you know, small businesses, freelancers, because at the end of the day, they're not as resilient, right? How have you or the founders or the company, you know, thought about that from a, from a, a potential to grow a, a business standpoint, right? Like how are you overcoming those risks, uh, especially in a time like now, right? I mean, a lot of small businesses are struggling. Yeah. I just love to hear you, you know, riff on that a little bit. So, I mean, there definitely is more turnover than some larger companies, but overall you definitely have a lot of healthy businesses that have good cash flow that last, you know, at least five years, if not 10, 20 or longer. The real problem is they're overlooked because of the business models that the big banks have is that they care about larger and larger deposits and they end up charging for things that those small businesses need and are crucial to their business because of that kind of law of big numbers, right? So we, we in one way, approach it that way, which is to say that there are definitely plenty healthy businesses that just are smaller for whatever reason, but they have great cash flow. They may not have huge deposits that are just sitting there but they have a lot of cash flow going through. We're talking a couple million a year. You know, I mean, that's not small, small beans. The other thing is to think about it from the human angle, right? And this is why I was saying like, it's consumer-like because of the fact that 
we want to be the place where you start a business and you start banking with Novo. And let's say that after six months or a year, you have to close it down because the business is failing or whatever, whatever, right? When you decide, and we've, we've seen this, I, I don't know the studies on this in terms of the statistics, but people who start one company are way more likely to start multiple companies, right? And so we want to be, it's similar to like AWS. We want to be your choice, whatever projects you've got. Next time you, you want to start a business, you should think of us. Or if your friend comes to you and says, hey, I know you started a business two years ago and it failed. I'm starting a business now. What should I know? We want you to think of Novo. And so, you know, it's really a longer term play, but I really do think that it's important. Um, and I do like to think long term there because I think it, it allows you to keep in focus the commitment to customers, the commitment to people, and the commitment to creating products that create long term value. Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 makes sense. I, I love the AWS uh, comparison because AWS right started with small businesses and, and look where they are now. Uh, I also think about like HubSpot as another company that did that small, started small businesses, but look where they are now. So one thing you mentioned there, and I know we're getting close on time, so I'll start to you know wrap up a little bit. But you mentioned the business model of big banks versus the business model of Novo. I looked at. Novo from a fees standpoint, and it looks like almost you have none. <laughs> so how does how do you guys make money? Yeah, so currently our revenue is through uh, what's called interchange. So when you're using the debit card right now, because the way the bank is, uh, our partner bank is classified, and in America it's very specific. And I do not want to get too technical here. That's an entirely other conversation, but. To make a long story short, the big banks are not able to charge uh, a lot of money on interchange for that debit card usage. And so that means that their business model is skewed towards other ways of making money. But smaller banks who have less than $10 billion in assets, which is still a large amount, but you know, those smaller banks, they actually make money, a, a good chunk of money through essentially that interchange fee when you swipe that debit card. So right now, that is our main source of revenue. In our opinion, you know, our pillars really as a product are really about staying as low cost as possible because that is what our users and our customers care about. Providing value ads that are simple and geared towards small businesses where they don't need super overpowered thing that's expensive, but they also don't need crap that's super cheap or free. We want to provide them that blend, that blended experience um, where it's almost like a premium free experience, right? And so right now, that's our main source of revenue. But we definitely, when we think about other sources of revenue, it's really about how can we make sure that those business models are incentivized and aligned with the same incentives that those small businesses have. And that's our philosophy. And I think when you look at a lot of old banks and old financial institutions, their philosophy is usually, how can we make money here by either by force or by obfuscation, by hiding things from the customer. We do not want to do that. We want to be transparent and we want to make sure that we're making money when you make money and you succeed and where you're choosing in some ways. Like for example, we want to speed up payments. We want to roll out what's called same-day ACH so that it's not instant, but it'll, basically if I send a payment to someone, it's not going to go over the traditional banking rails. It'll go over these new rails that where you'll get paid in the same day. We want to roll that out. And that's something that people might pay a little extra for. Let's say you pay 25 cents for that, right? Per transaction. But not everyone needs that. So we're still going to provide the regular, you know, rails for free. And then we'll provide that for let's say 25 cents a pop. 
you should be able to choose that you want to use that. We don't want to hide that fee from you. We want you to feel good about paying that fee. And then our incentives are aligned. If we're able to roll out more features that you actually want to pay for, that's good. As long as it's set up where we're not screwing you over and you feel like you're paying for something that you're not getting. Yeah, no, I like that. That makes a lot of sense, especially being part of a small business with my father. I I understand like getting an ACH faster is is you know sometimes you know cash flow is is the is the main thing, right? You want to get cash in. So sounds like you guys are are on to something. Few last questions. So one, when you joined Novo, I believe, and because I, I remember when you, when it happened, I think you were around twenty something employees. Is that right? Or how many employees were there when you joined? Yeah, it was somewhere between 20 and 30 at the time. We have an office in India. So our, our presence here was about like 10 people. And I think in India, we had somewhere in the realm of 10 to 20. Mm-hmm. And where are you now? Now, I think we're pushing 50. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it said on LinkedIn, but I wanted to, to be sure. And then the other thing, it says that you're hiring based on your LinkedIn, at least. Are you guys still hiring? If so, um, what positions? I'd love to uh, you know shout it out to some people. Yeah. So specifically, I am hiring for one role. It's a product management role. We're looking for people who have specific fintech or banking experience. Someone who is not going to have to read a book to understand what ACH is, how card rails work and things like that. It's a little specific. It's a little tough. But the reason for that is that we're trying to innovate on top of a lot of these rails. And so we want someone to come in who's got at least some working knowledge of how that works. Makes sense. Makes sense. Hey, well... um... I definitely wish you guys the best at, at, at doing that uh, and finding that person. And I, I will definitely keep my eyes out as, I, as, as time goes on. One thing I want to ask you, and this one's uh, it's kind of time sensitive, right? We are in a, in a weird time, right? With uh, COVID affecting everybody, essentially, from a health standpoint and a lot of people from a financial standpoint. How are things at, at Novo today? Yeah, so we've actually run a little counter to the stories that you've seen. And that's mostly because I think one, the businesses that we've attracted so far are mostly digital businesses that are online. And so we haven't had a lot of retail businesses. So the, so most of those businesses that have been affected have not been no-go customers. So we haven't seen a lot of you know account closures due to that. But we have seen some, some of course. And the other side of it is we've seen a boom because people are not only they they might be furloughed or laid off or whatever, and they're finally getting around to their side project or starting a business they they were putting off. And what are they looking for? They're looking for something that's fully digital. They don't have to go in in person to a branch and something that's free and not going to nickel and dime them and something that's going to connect to the the tools that they need to succeed as a business. And that's that's what we offer. So we are actually seeing record highs in terms of signups right now because of that. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Hey. Well, uh, Matt, I-, I appreciate you taking the time. This is amazing. Good to catch up, friend. Totally. Where can everybody find you if they uh, want to connect with you online? Uh, yeah, you can reach me on uh, LinkedIn. Matt at banknovo.com is my email as well. I'm on Twitter as at Ear to the Noise. Actually, DMing on Twitter is totally... My DMs are open, so feel free to DM me on Twitter. Lots of great connections through that. Yeah, those are probably the primary ways to reach me. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, well, Matt, I appreciate you taking the time, Ed, and uh, I'll talk to you on Twitter soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Henry. Awesome. Peace. Thanks for listening to Riding a Rocket by RocketShipJobs.com. To join our newsletter with hundreds of other ambitious people, go to RocketShipJobs.com. Leave your email address and we'll send you the next exclusive opportunity.